Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you're joining us today. And this is a ministry of Hickory Ridge Community Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. We'd love to have you come by to see us sometime. We do Sunday morning worship services at 9 o'clock or 1045. Uh, we've got a wonderful children's ministry that we call Elevate. So come on and join us. Bring the kids with you. We'll have a great time together as we look at the Word of God and as we spend some time together. Well, just before I get into the subject of forgiveness, uh, recently, I wrote an article for our church, and uh, every week I send out uh, an email to our church family, and uh, I just encourage them to follow along with what we've been studying uh, as a congregation. And so we've been uh, studying the kingdom of God, and that was our subject this past week. And uh, you know, we had a great weekend. Uh, it was a great gathering of God's people. And as I was talking to somebody at the end of the service, uh, they were asking me some questions about what many would consider the prosperity gospel. And so because they were so much interested in this particular topic, and it was ironic that just the day before, I was talking to a lady who uh, is one of our listeners, as a matter of fact, and uh, she came to our yard sale that we had at the church, and I got talking to her, and uh, somehow our conversation turned to matters of faith, and she asked me what I thought about the prosperity gospel. Well, I figured that she was against it, uh, but I was impressed about how much she was able to discern between the falsehood of this popular but very unbiblical faith that basically teaches financial blessings and physical well-being are always God's will. You know, prosperity triggered by faith and positive speech and donations to religious causes that will increase one's material wealth. And so material and especially financial success are always seen as a divine favor. Well, you know, more than a century ago, speaking to then the largest congregation in the world, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I believe that is anti-Christian and unholy for any Christian to live with the object of accumulating wealth. You will say, are we not to strive all we can to get all the money we can? You may do so. I cannot doubt but what, if in so doing, you may serve to the cause of God. But what I said was that to live with the object of accumulating wealth is anti-Christian. In other words, we're taking something secondary and making it primary. As followers of Christ, we are told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. So first things first, and then if you happen to get some wealth in the process, then great. But if you happen not to, then that's great also. Let's examine some of the areas where prosperity gospel is unbiblical. And I'm not going to go deep into them, but I'm going to give you five areas that I've kind of noticed where prosperity gospel is unbiblical. Number one is that the prosperity gospel teaches that the primary purpose of the Abrahamic covenant was for God to bless Abraham materially. Now, since believers are now Abraham's spiritual children, uh, we find that throughout the book of Genesis, specifically Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22, we have an inherited financial blessing. Kenneth Copeland wrote in The Laws of Prosperity, since God's covenant has been established and prosperity is a provision of this covenant, you need to recognize that prosperity belongs to you now. Now, here's where we disagree. The ultimate blessing given through Abraham is the gift of everlasting life. As provided by a Jewish descent, a descendant of Abraham named Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't come to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. Well, here's the second thing I would say about the prosperity gospel. When Jesus died on the cross, they would say, His atonement covered the sin of 
poverty. Well, Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. In Galatians 3.13, this is what they quote, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Uh, So their logic was, Abraham was rich, so we'll be rich. One significant problem. (laughs) They don't quote the second part of the verse. Paul says in the second part of Galatians 3.14, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So the blessing that is passed on through Abraham is the blessing of faith in the Spirit of God living within us. Well, here's a third reason that we might have a little problem with those who advocate the prosperity gospel, because many of them believe that Christians give in order to gain. We give to get. Now, they base this on Mark chapter 10, verse number 30, where it says, Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time? houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Well, the verse is not only taken out of context, but it's only half quoted. The second part of the verse says this, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who will be first will be last and the last will be first. Now, ironically, Jesus had just finished a conversation with a rich young ruler when he spoke these words. And by the way, the rich young ruler, his God was his wealth. I heard a prosperity false teacher who promised, if I send him $100, God would give me $1,000 in return. Well, I had a friend who heard that, and we were listening to that together. And so I dared my friend. I says, I dare you to call in that number. And so my friend called into that number and asked the operator if she really believed that the $100 donation would be turned into $1,000. She said, well, yes, of course I do, she replied. Well, my friend says, well, if you really do believe it's true, Then send me $100, and when you receive it, you're going to get $1,000 in return. Well, the operator hung up. I guess she really doesn't believe that uh, it's going to be multiplied by giving. I want you to know, as we look at what God has done for us, if God gives us nothing else, and he does, gives us a whole lot. I mean, we're here in the United States. We are blessed beyond measure, right? And we are blessed with financial blessings, okay? But that's not the primary motivation of why we serve the Lord. It's for the spiritual benefits of having our sins forgiven and knowing that we are going to heaven one day, not because of our own merits, but because of the goodness of the Lord. You know, if you ever read the book of Hebrews in in chapters 11 and 12, you discover that in some cases, those who live by faith, you know, faith is substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Those who live by faith, many times they were spared and they were blessed by being spared. But then as you get through the bottom of chapter 11 and into chapter number 12, you see that some of them weren't spared. As a matter of fact, those who lived most like Christ and for Christ were not worthy of this world. And the Bible says that many of them were cut in two. Many of them driven through with a spear. Some of them were beheaded. And it says, of whom this world was not deserving. You think about that person that is really sold out to Christ. They may or may not be rich. That is totally irrelevant to their walk with Christ. As I look at these great saints, God looked down from heaven and said, man, here are my choicest servants. Uh, They are so acting like my kingdom, I'm going to bring them on home. Now, they may not have liked the way they were delivered on home, but God got them home. I think about Job. You know, every time I get discouraged, every time I think that my life has fallen apart and that things are going wrong, I always read the book of Job. You know, Job was a wealthy man. As a matter of fact, Satan accused him of being a follower of God just because God blessed him and just because God put a hedge of protection around him. You know, it was God who brought up Job. It wasn't Satan. Satan was afraid to bring up Job. 
God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan replies, oh yeah, I've considered him, but I can't even get a shot at him because you've blessed him so much, you put a hedge of protection around him, and I, I can't get a finger on him. God says, I'm going to lower that hedge of protection. You can go ahead and take a shot at Job, and I promise you, I know his faith, I know his heart, and uh, he's not going to uh, give up on me. Uh, he's not going to curse me. As a matter of fact, he lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his self-respect. He lost his wealth. Even his wife said, why don't you just curse God and died? Everything went bad for Job, yet Job never cursed God. You see, his faith wasn't based upon material provisions. His faith was based like Abraham of old. He had his confidence in God, and he even said this. He went so far to say, even though he slays me, I will not curse him. Well, there's something else that we will notice about those who propagate the prosperity gospel. They will say that faith is generated, self-generated. In other words, I've got this faith that must be worked up within me. It's a spiritual force that produces prosperity. Now, the definition of biblical faith refutes that idea altogether. Faith is not self-generation. Faith is forsaking myself, not building myself up, not working myself up. It is putting my trust exclusively in Christ, not on myself. Saving faith is a gift from God. Faith has got that substance to it. And that substance is found in Christ. It's not found in me. The substance or the object of my faith is not myself. It's my Savior. I trust Jesus because he has proven faithful in providing my salvation. I also trust him for the things that I cannot see. So one other thing, as we look at the prosperity gospel, before we dive into the subject of forgiveness, those who, and I I hate to paint a broad brush because not everybody who believes this, but many I have found will buy into these, these schools of thought. And their fifth reason that we have a problem with them is that they look at prayer as kind of a tool. It's, it's a tool to force God to grant me personal prosperity. And they use James 4 too, right? Where James says, you have not because you ask not. Now, curiously, prosperity preachers often ignore the second half of James's teaching on prayer, which says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. In other words, James hits the nail on the head in the very next verse. And he says, listen, you're not going to receive because you're getting it to spend on your own passions, right? Your own selfish motivation. And so that prayer is probably being answered by somebody, but it's not being answered by the Lord. You know, I think that the enemy hears our prayers. I think the enemy can even provide prosperity to us if it will keep us from worshiping the true God. James Argoff noted in his comments on the prosperity gospel, he wrote, with the prosperity gospel, God is reduced to a kind of a cosmic bellhop, attending to the needs and to the desires of his creation. In other words, God was created for the good pleasure, our good pleasure. We need to be careful about the message of the prosperity gospel and the advocates and what they advocate. The prosperity gospel is not just a different teaching. Oh, my friends, it is a different gospel. And if you ever read the book of Galatians, you discover there's a different gospel that was no gospel at all. The gospel is always revolving around Jesus Christ. It is never revolving around the one that has been changed by Christ. You see, I want to encourage you today to know the difference between the gospel and your testimony. Uh, The gospel is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who died to save your soul, who died to save you from your sins. The testimony is what God did in your life personally. 
Don't confuse those two. The gospel will endure forever. You will only be here for a short while. And the soul, the real part of you, is going to go somewhere, and I hope it's going to heaven. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you've got your ticket to heaven, and, and you will be there. As a matter of fact, it is promised to you at the moment of conversion. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Believe and receive everlasting life. Well, once you receive that everlasting life, then you can be a good forgiver. So let's talk about forgiveness. As you think about forgiveness, Jesus had a bunch of people that were gathered around him, and they asked him a question. And they said, well, teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, as I think about that statement, loving my neighbor as you love yourself, that is being able to forgive somebody else of the unforgivable because I'm carrying out the most important command of the law of Moses. I'm loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. When that happens, I have received forgiveness and I pass forgiveness on. That is how I have peace with God. Now, this is really important because I've got to face up to my fears. I've got to face up to my failures. And anytime I run from fear, instead of facing it in faith, I miss God's will for my life. I want you to be at peace with God. And part of that includes being a person who receives God's forgiveness, but it also includes giving forgiveness to somebody else. Let's talk about living at peace with God. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 12 quickly. And and I want you to know that you're living at peace with God when you're right with God and with others. This is how Paul put it. He says, love must be sincere. Number one, the way to be at peace with God, hate what is evil. And then number two, cling to what is good. Number three, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. And I love how this passage just self-outlines itself, right? You want to have peace with God? Hate what's evil. You want to have peace with God? Cling to what is good. You want to have peace with God? Be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Number four, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, okay? Be zealous in serving the Lord. Number five, be joyful in hope. Oh, joy comes from that blessed hope, not the immediate circumstance of my life, but that hope that I have in Christ. All right, moving on. Number six, be patient in affliction. Number seven, faithful in prayer. Number eight, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Number nine, Practice hospitality. And this is not a one-and-done thing. This is an ongoing occurrence. Practice hospitality. Number 10, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Number 11, rejoice. That is that you connect with those who rejoice. You mourn with those who mourn. Number 12, live in harmony with one another. Number 13, don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Now, don't be conceited. Number 14, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, I love that, don't you? 
Those are just a quick list of 14 ways to know you can have peace with God. Now, it is possible to have peace with God. And when we look at this, we're given some really good ways of how to have peace with God. Not taking revenge. Let's continue on on this list. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you will heap up burning coals on his head. Oh, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this is a long list given to us in Romans chapter 12, isn't it? Now, let's kind of break it down a little bit. Do you know that good, distant runners, uh, they don't just play general messages through their mind. They don't say, like, relax or or stay loose when they're running. Instead, believe it or not, I used to be a cross-country runner. I I know you find that hard to believe. Uh, That was a long time ago, right? Good runners play specific messages over and over again in their mind, like, let your lower lip sag or feel how loose my fingers are right now. These specific messages help their whole body to relax and to stay loose. Another specific idea for love is found in the quotation of Proverbs chapter 25. We're told to give food, give something to drink to the hungry and to the thirsty, even our enemies. Now, as we look at this, this is something that probably doesn't run through our mind, right? But it's something that should be running through our minds. We get the big things, right? You know, it's biblical, uh, just like don't commit murder, but it's also biblical that we're to reach out and to help one another. It's just as biblical as don't commit adultery. Uh, It's just as biblical as don't murder, don't lie, right? All these things are biblical truths that we know, but forgiveness also is a choice of obedience. Unforgiveness is a choice of disobedience. You know, there's no sitting on the fence on this one, right? Either you're going to be one who forgives or you're going to be one who's living in disobedience by choosing not to forgive. You know, I can have a right relationship with God when I ask for forgiveness. God is pleased when you stay conscious of Him and you patiently endure unfair treatment. You know, just last week, a guy told me a a story about a couple who was having some obvious problems. The husband was just sitting in the living room and reading the paper, and the wife comes in and and smacks him on the head with a far frying pan. He goes, what was that all about? The wife says, well, I was doing your laundry, and I reached into your pocket, and I found a, a name there, the name Mary Lou. He goes, well, you're blowing this way out of proportion. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I went to the horse track, and the horse that I bet on was Mary Lou? Of course, she felt terrible. I can't believe I accused you of that. I'm sorry. A few days later, he's watching TV, and she comes back again, smacks him on the head again. What was all that uh, all about? He says, your horse, Mary Lou, just called. <laughs> so uh, as we think about that funny little story, right? God is pleased when we say conscience of him and patiently endure unfair treatment. I can have a right relationship with others when I offer forgiveness. Now, I want to make a distinction between forgiveness and trust, forgiveness and relationship. Uh, you can forgive somebody without having a relationship with that person. It would be hopeful that things could be reconciled. You could have a relationship with that person. But some people are irreconcilable, right? No matter what you do, they're not going to come back into a a healthy relationship with you. Uh, So look what Matthew chapter 5 says. So if you're standing there in the place of the altar at the temple, you're going to church on Sunday, you're offering your offering to the Lord, and all of a sudden you remember that somebody has something against you, 
So what do you do? You leave your sacrifice there beside the altar. You go and be reconciled with that person, and then you come back and offer that sacrifice to the Lord. You see, the reason we need to forgive is because it impacts our ability to give unto the Lord. And so Matthew 18, Jesus is dealing with his disciples, and Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often should I forgive somebody who sins against me? Seven times? No, Jesus says, 77 times. Tim Keller so well puts this. We're far worse than we can ever imagine, and we're far more loved than we can ever dream. You see, when we refuse to forgive somebody, it just shows us how far worse we really are. But when we forgive somebody, we realize how loved God is because every time I forgive somebody, even though I may not get the warm and fuzzies and even though that relationship may not be fully restored and reconciled, I experience God's peace and his love because I obeyed him and I did the right thing. Well, what happens when I choose not to forgive? When I said, I'm not going to forgive and and I dig into my heels. Well, I disobey God's instructions. Now, I want you to think, as you're driving down the road today, uh, and if you can do this, go ahead and do this. Raise your hand if you have been hurt by other people. You know, keep one uh, hand on the wheel, and uh, I've been hurt by other people. Okay, we all have, right? And, and now the guy next to you is wondering why this guy next to me is raising his hand as he's driving down the interstate. Okay, we all have painful experiences. If we act in disobedience regarding God's instruction on forgiveness, we miss the blessing he offers when we sincerely forgive. We all have been hurt, and we all have hurt others. So when I don't forgive, I disobey God's instructions. Number two, when I don't forgive, my anger is intensified. You see, your anger is going to be intensified if you don't have forgiveness. That becomes a core value of your life. Because when you don't forgive, the word picture I have in my mind is you become like a human porcupine. You hurt people everywhere you go. Uh, you, you become like this walking minefield. I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to uh, that lack forgiveness, and, and you can see it in their face, you can see it in their life, and you can see it in their actions, and it almost immediately comes up. If you're able to break that surface in, in any type of conversation, it seems like they always go back to that anger of what somebody did. Uh, I was just talking to a couple just this past weekend, and I'm trying to encourage them to, to reconcile, to forgive one another, and, and one of the spouses, you can feel the anger and resentment build up. They refuse to forgive. It's easy to tell. Your anger is intensified when you don't forgive. I disobey God's instructions when I don't forgive. And then number three, when I don't forgive, I relive painful experiences. Let me ask you another question. When you relive that pain, who's hurt? The other person or me? Or me? You know what's happening when I relive that painful experience? The other person doesn't know anything about it. The other person is out having a great time, just living it up. And and I'm at home chained to my own sewer, my own personal sewer of hatred, where that stench has become so nauseous that it's seeping out of my body. And it makes its way into my veins and and it circulates into my heart and I become an ugly, bitter person. That's what happens. You relive it over and over again. Some of you may be refusing to forgive. And you say, well, it's so hard, you know, because now your experience has become your story. It's become your identity. Hating them and not forgiving them has become who you are. 
when you retell that story, uh, even to a new audience, and you become the center of the stage because all of a sudden you gain attention and you gain sympathy. For some of you, it has become your franchise and, and you don't want to give it up. Uh, giving away would be like a, a fisherman giving away his boat or a, a chauffeur giving away his car or, or a puppeteer giving away his puppets or, or a pirate giving away his plank. It's like your crutch. But I remind you what Jesus said. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Well, I hope you join me tomorrow because I'm going to talk to you about how I can become a good forgiver. Some of the things that we go through as we forgive others. We've talked about the negative today. We're going to talk about the positive tomorrow. Well, listen, if you enjoyed this ministry and you'd like to give financially to this ministry, you can go to our church website, hrcc7.org. And on that website, there's a tab that you can give to this ministry, or there's also a tab that you can listen to our podcast. Uh, If you like what you hear on the radio broadcast, you want to listen to one of the older broadcasts, and you're wondering, how can I get it? Well, you go to our website, and some of the uh, most recent ones are on the website. So thank you so much for listening. God bless you. I'll talk to you real soon. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.